Good morning. Welcome to our 10 a.m. worship service here at Calvary Baptist Church. I am Pastor Stephen, the teaching pastor of our local assembly. Uh, The 10 a.m. hour of our Sunday service, we are going through the 1689 Second London Baptist Confession of Faith. Uh, The members here of Calvary Baptist Church are confessional. We are Reformed Baptist, and we have decided for our 10 a.m. service to go through the confession so that we can understand the essential doctrines of what we believe. Uh, Today, we are in chapter one of the confession, and we are in paragraph six which reads, the whole counsel of God concerning everything essential for his own glory and man's salvation, faith and life is either explicitly stated or by necessary inference contained in the Holy Scriptures. Nothing is ever added to the Scriptures, either by new revelation of the Spirit or by human traditions. Nevertheless, we acknowledge that the inward illumination of the Spirit of God is necessary for a saving understanding of what is revealed in the Word. We recognize that some circumstances concerning the worship of God and government of the church are common to human actions and organizations and are to be ordered by the light of nature and Christian wisdom, following the general rules of the word, which must always be observed. As a pastor, I often hear two phrases. Phrase number one, I often hear, well, that's just your opinion. I hear that more than anything. Over the years, I've been pastoring churches for the last eight years, three separate churches, and at each church, I've had at least one person, whether member or just a visitor, claim to say and to believe that what I just preached is only your opinion. The second popular phrase that I hear Uh, in the last several churches, either from members or visitors, is that's just your interpretation. Those are the two phrases. That is just your opinion or that is just your interpretation. Do you think I, do you think I think I'm infallible? Of course not. Do you think I believe I'm inerrant, that I don't make mistakes in my interpretation, that there isn't at least one doctrine that I hold to that at the day of judgment, the Lord will rebuke me over? Of course he will. But here's the thing. Although teaching elders, teachers in general, are fallible, and although teaching elders are in, they are errant, that doesn't mean your claim of, well, that's just your opinion, 
or that's just your interpretation is valid. If that is valid, if you're, well, I don't have to believe what you believe, I don't have to submit to what you say, if that is just your interpretation or your opinion is valid, therefore, I don't have to submit to it. Then why do you sit underneath the preaching of a man, of any man? If those criticisms are valid, wives, why do you submit to fallible husbands? If those claims are, are true and they're valid, they should be accepted. Well, I don't have to submit to the preaching pastor because that's just his interpretation. Children, why do you obey imperfect parents? Obviously, I'm being facetious with those questions. But when it comes to the preaching of God's word in the church, why is my inadequacy always brought up as an excuse to not submit to the preaching? We all know the answer to these questions. We all know the answer to questions like, do teaching pastors give their interpretation of Scripture's meaning? Of course we do. Of course it's our interpretation. It's not yours. Why would I ask you what you believe? Why would I preach concerning what you want me to believe? But that still isn't a credible excuse why you should dismiss the interpretation just because you agree with it. Just because you don't agree with my interpretation doesn't mean you should automatically dismiss it. Why not? Because according to the 1689 Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, the Holy Spirit is the person who gives the understanding of God's word to the Christian. The confession says, and I quote, we acknowledge, we know, we believe, we acknowledge, we are firm in this, that the inward illumination of the Spirit of God is necessary for a saving understanding of what is revealed in the word. In order to be able to understand what the Holy Scriptures teach, the Holy Spirit must provide the illumination. He must provide the understanding of Scripture. Where is that stated in Scripture? I think it's stated in several places. Very clear that only the Spirit of God can give a true understanding of God's Word. For instance, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. In verse 11, Paul says, For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person, which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. And if you drop down to verse 15, The natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God, for they are folly to him. 
and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. They lack the spirit. The scripture teaches that our understanding of God's word comes to us from the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit searches the depths of God so that he can provide us with the knowledge that we need to know. None of us here would reject the regenerating power of the Spirit. We all know that in order to be a Christian, the Holy Spirit must open the heart. He must open the mind in order for us to embrace the Christian faith. But we often forget the continual illuminating work of the Holy Spirit, not just at regeneration, but even in the process of sanctification, that the Holy Spirit must continue to engage the mind. He must continue to engage the heart, the inward being, so that we can know Scripture. So that we can have the scripture make sense to us. So why do we need the Holy Spirit to illuminate scripture? Because unregenerate, fallible, and errant men are incapable of understanding God's holy word on their own. Men live in a state of darkness, blindness. And we're not talking about in a dark room. We're talking about spiritual blindness, a spiritual darkness. Listen to these scriptures which speak concerning the spiritual darkness of a man. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 19. The way of the wicked is like darkness. They do not know what makes them stumble. Psalm 82.5. They do not know, nor do they understand. They walk about in darkness. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 18, speaking about unbelievers as having their minds darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 14 says of the unbelieving Jews that their minds were blinded. How important, how critical is the illuminating spirit, this work, this part of the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives? Crucial, right? It's important, it's vital, whatever other synonym you want to use. But this is important to remember. Uh, when we say that the unbeliever cannot understand Scripture, we don't mean that he can't look at the Bible and pick out moral truths and acknowledge them. For instance, a, an unbeliever can open up Exodus chapter 20 and read the commandments that are listed there by God and come away with saying, you know what? I believe God does not approve of murder. It's wrong to do that. It's immorally wrong 
to commit murder. But what he is unable to do, he is unable to understand how God's law is an offense to God's glory. How God's law is an offense is a hatred. The breaking of the law is a, is a sign of hatred towards God. It is a, a sign of hatred towards his neighbor. He is unable to understand the weight of God's law in light of his moral condition. Meaning is, an unbeliever is unable to look at God's law and realize that he stands guilty before a righteous God. That although the law does reveal that he is an unbeliever, unregenerate lawbreaker, he fails to recognize that the law of God also reveals God's righteousness. He's unable to come to those terms. But this is the beauty of the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit takes that inability and causes that man to be born again. And the entire faculties, his mind, the heart, the conscience, the reason, the will, all those things that have been corrupted by sin are now brought to life. And a change within those faculties takes place. And now... The unbeliever becomes a believer and he is able to embrace, to know, and to obey the Holy Scriptures. He truly becomes a new creation. So what exactly happens during illumination? What does it look like? This is what illumination looks like. This is what takes place during this process. Obviously, it's inward, so we're not able to see it. Therefore, we have to go into the pages of Scripture to find out what the Holy Spirit does in order to illuminate the mind. This is what the Scripture does. This is what the Scripture says. What happens during illumination? When we hear the scriptures preached, or as we read the scripture, the Spirit of God, which is scripture's author, opens the heart and the mind. He engages, he communicates to the heart and to the mind. He grants the heart and the mind the gift of faith. And when that gift is planted and communicated to the heart and to the mind, the light of understanding turns on. And so we call this work, the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit, monergistic. Moner meaning alone. Gistic being a, a word that describes a work, an action, uh, a, a work alone. The Holy Spirit alone brings about this change. 
We do not cooperate with him. He does the work alone. And so the same spirit who gave the prophets and the apostles the scriptures to write, he is the same spirit who convinces us of that scripture's reliability. The same spirit who spoke through Isaiah, who spoke through the apostle Paul, speaks to us. And he convinces us that what those men wrote is indeed the word of God and indeed the truth of God. It is trustworthy. It is able to build you up. It is able to give you an inheritance. Men should walk after it. It is a light to our path, a lamp unto our feet. It is the very words of God. Because of the Spirit's work in our lives, we now know and we now possess what we could not know and what we did not possess. We see what we could not see. And it's important to know that the Holy Spirit doesn't change the scripture in order to fit us. He changes us in order to align with scripture. He enters into our darkness. He enters into our blindness. And he transfers us into a grace-filled light. That's what happens. And not only that, according to the scripture, teaching pastors, husbands, fathers, they have that same power manifesting in them in a different degree than a common lay person. Each one of you have the ability to understand God's word. Each one of you have the ability to know God's word. But the gift of teaching, the gift of instruction is only given to a few. So does that mean since your pastor and father and husband have the gift of teaching to instruct you in the ways of the Lord, does that mean their interpretation is always right? I wish. But unfortunately, that's not true. They do not. And also, let me add, there isn't many interpretations to one passage of Scripture. I'm sure we've all heard someone say, or we even said it ourselves. Well, to me, this Bible passage means this. A Bible passage cannot mean one thing to you and mean a different and carry a different meaning for someone else. For that to be true, Scripture would be subjective. And if Scripture can mean many different things at the same time, it can mean anything. And if the scripture can mean anything, then it means nothing. There's no truth at all to it. So how does the church agree on one interpretation of a Bible passage? By placing their confidence in the Holy Spirit. 
that the man who God appointed to teach them the word, although he is fallible, that man is fallible, and he certainly makes mistakes, you still acknowledge that God has given him the gift of teaching. God has given him the gift of understanding. And the other men, and this is important, the other men that make up the elder leadership of the church hold him accountable. And together they bring the God, God's word to the people. In order for an elder to be an elder, he has to have the gift of teaching. The gift of teaching is a prerequisite of being an elder. If a man does not have the ability to teach, then he is unqualified to be an elder. Well, what if I disagree with the elder's interpretation of a passage of scripture? And this is an important question to ask. Well, what if you don't agree with me? Before I actually answer that question for you, I want to first mention what I don't want you to believe and what I don't want you to do if that happens. First, I don't want you to believe that your elders think that we're always right. I don't want you to think that. I believe over the last three years that I've been here that I have reformed in some of my beliefs. I mean, we can take a look around our church and there are certain things that are going on in our church today that three years ago, I didn't hold that position. Singing the Psalms in church, weekly communion, uh, women in head coverings. Three years ago, those things didn't come up. Two years ago, they didn't come up. So I want you to understand just as much as you're reforming, we are too. And that's okay. In fact, later I'll tell you that that's a good thing that we're reforming consistently and throughout the years. The second thing I want you to know is that the elders of your church don't govern the church in the same way as the Roman Catholic Church do or the Roman Catholic Church does. Let me explain what I mean by that. According to the Roman Catholic Church, all scriptural interpretation, what you practice here in this church and what you practice at your home, all scriptural interpretation belongs to the church. No member in the Roman Catholic Church has the right to believe contrary to the church. So what the Pope and the cardinals and the bishop and the priest, what they pass down to you inside the church, they expect you to carry out even in the privacy of your own home. All interpretation belongs to the church. The reformers obviously rejected this tradition such as the confession says. The Roman Catholic Church did not want their members to possess scripture because they believed, they, they feared, that if their members would read the scripture privately, that they would come up with a different interpretation than the church and they would not have peace 
and continuity in their church. But the elders of this church and the reformers reject that. The reformers and the elders of this church want you to read Scripture for yourself. We want you to study Scripture in the privacy of your homes. And we hope what the Lord sears your conscience with in the study of Scripture, that you would practice that inside of your home. And so I expect for us to have different interpretations of Scripture. But here's the thing. I don't want you to hold a different interpretation from me because of what your former pastor taught. I don't want you to hold a automatically hold a different interpretation, automatically reject what I'm saying because your father said so or because that's the way you were raised. I want you to study for yourself. I encourage you to challenge yourself because you know what? I'm going to challenge you. Haven't I done that the last three years? Haven't at least say what you want, but haven't I at least challenged you in what you have been taught? So what if you do believe differently than the elders? First, it depends on the specific doctrine. If the differing opinion involves a first order doctrine and you believe the elders are in error, you certainly should approach the elders. You should approach us. You should lay out your case. You should ask us to look into this scripture Uh, You should do so from a a humble position because you love us and you want us to be right and you want us to be correct and to hold the the correct interpretation of that scripture. But you need to bring your work. You can't just say, Pastor Steve and Pastor Chris, I think you're wrong about this. I want you to think about it. You need to bring your work. You need to be able and willing to sit down and study the passage with us. After you met with us and we still do not uh, believe uh, what you believe, we still have a different opinion on first order doctrines, then you should leave the church peacefully. If the first order doctrine remains unrepaired in our relationship, then you should leave the church immediately. And you should leave the church peacefully. Now, that doesn't mean that you should send emails to members explaining to them what's going on. You shouldn't make private phone calls or have private meetings with them to gossip about the church in order to let your opinion known to everyone. Leave the church quietly. Leave the church peacefully because here's the thing that you have to remember. When members leave the church, 
that naturally causes the community to scorn that church. That church appears uh, to be in uh, to be uh, in disrepute among the community, and you really don't want to do that. You really don't want to bring harm upon the church to have our witness stained in the community. And so you leave quietly, you leave peacefully. I keep mentioning these first order doctrines. Why first order doctrines? Uh, Because they are significant to a theological matter. They are urgent. What are these first order doctrines? Inerrancy of scripture, the Trinity, the person and work of Christ, justification by faith alone, creation, the surety of the second coming in the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. Those are first order doctrines. And if there is a different opinion upon those, then we have a problem. And if the church isn't willing to change her stance, then you shouldn't. That doesn't mean you should, but you should quietly and peacefully address that. But what if the difference of opinion is not a first order doctrine? What if it's a secondary doctrine? Well, my question is, how much do you love the church? How much do you love worshiping God with these people? Does your spouse and children love to be here? Are you gaining wisdom? Does that church, although you may disagree on a secondary doctrine, but do they preach the gospel? Do they value repentance? Do they value faith? Can you see the Lord at work in the church? Well, pastor, my answer is yes to those questions. Then you should stay and submit to the leadership. Let's take the Lord's Supper, for example. We participate in the Lord's Supper weekly here at our church. The elders believe that this is the... Correct interpretation of scripture. But what if you don't believe that? What if you believe the scripture teaches that we should take the Lord's Supper monthly instead of weekly? My question is, does taking the Lord's Supper weekly cause you to sin? Obviously not. In fact, Taking the Lord's Supper more frequently causes the opposite, right? The scripture says that as you examine yourself, as you discern the body, you appear righteous, right? You Sin is forgiven. Sin is put away. You're able to commune with the Lord. You're able to sit at his table. You're accepted, by him. Every time you take the Lord's Supper, you should examine yourself. It should cause you to look at your life. It should lead you to repentance. Taking the Lord's Supper actually strengthens your faith. It doesn't cause damage to it. So does the Lord's Supper, though you believe opposite. Though you have a different opinion, does the Lord's Supper weekly 
cause damage to your faith? Does it cause you to stumble into sin? Not hardly. Well, what about music? Ah, you sing the Psalms all the time. Man, I don't want to sing the psalm. I want those classical Christian hymns. Oh, hark, the herald angels sing. What's this stuff about breaking the jaw of the unbelievers? Give me silent night or holy night. We're America. Does singing the psalms cause you to stumble? Does the singing out of the psalter cause you to sin against God? Well, no. Can submit to leadership. Really? We do not operate as a Catholic church here. We do not believe that only the elders have the illuminating presence of the Holy Spirit. We encourage you to read scripture for your own. We encourage you to learn scripture. We encourage you to be able to articulate what you believe. But please remember that there is no congregation that's perfect. There is no body of elders, no group of elders who are perfect. Doctrinal conversations are necessary and they are helpful. A church that is willing to have these types of conversations is a healthy church. The second part of our study this morning is the inspiration of Scripture. What does inspiration mean? It means when men wrote the Scriptures, their statements, what they wrote, did not originate from their own thinking. But instead, those messages, the Word of God, what we read, was put into their minds by the direct action of the Holy Spirit. They wrote the Word of God in the sense that what they wrote came from God. That doesn't mean God always spoke audibly to them. It doesn't mean that every time they wrote something that God verbatim said it out loud and said, write this down or else. It's not what that means. It means that every word that is written down for us in scripture was dictated by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Let me give you two examples. The first example is in Romans chapter 9. Two different kinds of examples, right? First example is Romans chapter 9. Verse 2 says, I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. Paul is certainly expressing his feelings about the condition of the Jewish people, right? Those are his feelings. He has a great sorrow and unceasing grief in his heart. But since what he wrote is inspired by the Holy Spirit, that means the desire, the desire to express the desire, and the words that he used to express the desire all came from the Holy Spirit. 
Everything about that sentence, the desire, the desire to express the desire, and the words that he used to communicate the desire all came from the Holy Spirit. Everything about that sentence, the Holy Spirit inspired. Are they Paul's feelings? Absolutely. Are the feelings inspired by the Holy Spirit? Absolutely. The second example, in Mark chapter 13, verse 11, Jesus says, and when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. In scripture, when the apostles stood before kings, they stood before governors, they stood before Jewish authorities, that person because it appears in scripture, because that trial or that meeting is written down for us in scripture and the words are written down for us in scripture, even the first person testimony where Paul says, I, or Peter says, I, it's not him who's speaking, but God. Now, of course, the person is speaking in the sense that he's expressing the thoughts that are in his mind. But those thoughts that are in his mind are not formulated by him. The inspired speaker, the inspired writer of the scripture utters the words that are put directly in his mind by the Holy Spirit. That's inspiration of scripture. The miraculous part about the inspiration of scripture is that the Lord did not use notable scholars. He did not use men with high IQs. He did not use men who graduated from the local university. He didn't use philosophers. He used ordinary men who had ordinary employment. The only men who had unordinary employment that wrote scripture was King David and King Solomon, the apostle Paul. But just because the office that they served in was unordinary didn't mean that they were unordinary men. David was the youngest of his family, ruddy, there is nothing great about him as a child when God anointed him as king. The Apostle Paul, although he was a Pharisee, an educated man, when he was brought to saving faith, the Lord broke him. Broke him. When he began to serve his missionary trips and when he began to write his letters, the church remarked of, how weird he looked, right? He, he, he wasn't a man that you would look at and say, oh, well, look at this distinguished gentleman. He was beat up. The dude was stoned, whipped. He had physical problems. The enemies of the authors of scripture often made remarks of how ignorant they were, how uneducated they were. 
The Pharisees said these things about the apostles. The evil kings of the Old Testament said these things about the prophets. The Pharisees were the educated men of Israel, not the apostles. But the apostles are the ones who spoke with authority. And it's their wisdom that could not be contradicted. And it's because of Christ, right? The scripture clearly makes these comments about Jesus. Where did you get this education from? You, your parents are poor. You didn't go to school. But Jesus spoke with authority, not like the authority of the scribes and the Pharisees. How do we know that the Bible's inspired? Just because I say it doesn't make it true. Just because I believe it doesn't make it true. But how can we be confident that the scripture is inspired by the Holy Spirit? Two reasons. Number one, because the authors of scripture make that claim. And number two, the contents of their message makes that claim. The scripture authors, they claim that they were inspired by God and the message that they preached supports that claim. You ever go back and look at how each of these people are called by God? Each of them claim to speak on behalf of God. You notice that? Go back and read every book of the Bible. The author either explicitly states, I'm speaking on behalf of God. Thus says the Lord, I'm speaking on his behalf. Or their calling describes that. Or third, their message assumes it. The message supports it. Thus says the Lord was a constant reminder for the people that the prophet's words came from God. The apostle Paul claimed that we didn't speak. He says, we didn't speak in wisdom of men. Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 13. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. 2 Peter 1, 21. For no prophecy was ever, ever, was ever, no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. What's really interesting is, go back and read the early church fathers, men like Irenaeus and Polycarp, the shepherd of Hermes. The end of the first century, the beginning of the second century, early church, Clement of Alexandria. Go back and read them. There is a clear difference in the style in which they wrote compared to the apostles and the prophets. The prophets and the apostles, you can clearly discern that what they wrote was from God. The early church fathers, the men who lived 20, 50, 100 years after the apostles, never made that claim that God inspired them to write their material. Never. Okay, great. 
We know that the New Testament is inspired by God. We know that Jesus made the claim, it is written. Jesus is God in human flesh. He received the message from his father. The apostles received the message from the Lord Jesus. Paul often was visited by the Lord Jesus. The the letter of Galatians makes a claim that he actually spent time in Arabia where Jesus spoke to him by a series of revelation. But what about the inspiration of the Old Testament? How can we believe, how can we trust that the Old Testament is inspired by God? Because the New Testament makes that claim. If the New Testament is inspired by God and the New Testament makes the claim that the Old Testament is inspired by God, then the Old Testament is inspired by God since the New Testament claims it. Take the example for Jesus. Many times Jesus speaks of the Old Testament as, have you not read? It has been written. He even rebuked men who lived contrary to the Old Testament. If the Old Testament isn't inspired, Jesus would have no business rebuking men who didn't follow it. In the gospel, Jesus verifies the words of Moses. He verifies the Psalms. He verifies the prophets. The way that the authors of the New Testament quote the Old Testament reveals the inspiration of the Old Testament. The authors of the New Testament, listen to this, the authors of the New Testament claim that the Holy Spirit wrote the Old Testament. It really wasn't David. It really wasn't Moses. It was actually the Holy Spirit speaking to those men. Listen to these examples. Acts chapter four, verse 24. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. Peter says this after he and John were released from prison. They return to the church and they praise God for persecution. According to Peter, the persecution that they suffered was predicted by David in the Psalms. But notice that David says the ultimate author of that Psalm is the Holy Spirit. And the church who's gathered with Peter doesn't object. They don't say, well, excuse me, Peter, I think you're wrong about that. You, you misspoke. You said the Holy Spirit wrote that, but David wrote that. No, they receive it. They agree with Peter. Yes, the Holy Spirit did write that. Think about Acts 13. The Apostle Paul says, uh, he quotes uh, that God wrote the second Psalm when he says, you are my son, today I've begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and pure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another Psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. Two separate Psalms, Paul says God spoke in both of them. And finally, Hebrews chapter three, 
verse seven. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, and then the author quotes a psalm. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. The New Testament authors claim that the Old Testament scripture was written by the Holy Spirit. That he used men like David and Moses to write what he wanted them to write. And so that's inspiration. The inspiration of scripture describes how the authors of scripture wrote the words of scripture. The content of scripture did not originate in their own ideas or from their own ideas. But that content, the message, the words was delivered to them by the direct action of the Holy Spirit. And inspiration describes that process. And illumination describes how the Holy Spirit takes the inspiration of the Word of God and allows us to understand and obey it.